0: Somebody promised me espresso, and I can't find it anywhere. (laughs) That was the only condition on which I uh, would talk this morning, was that somebody would bring me espresso. So whoever's organising that, now's the time to go out and and get me just... keep it coming. Um, I'm uh, Andre, as Jesse said. Uh, I play guitar sometimes up here. Um, And uh, also... um, as he said, I don't like talking about <laughs> my credentials, but I am a theologian. And uh, I usually don't tell people that, because uh, uh, I get two kinds of responses from people when I say that I'm a theologian. Uh, first kind of person thinks I'm absolutely crazy, like I think it's like I've said, told them that I... Uh, go down to the pub every Friday and talk to Elvis or something. And I think, man, that's, that guy's really weird. He spends his time, his day job talking and thinking about God. Uh, the other people, I actually don't mind most people. I don't mind the people who think I'm I'm weird. Um, it's the people who, <laughs> who get excited when I say I do theology. Because the other people, you can see it on their face, it's like, finally they've found someone to say all their crazy ideas about God to <laughs> Usually, they involve numbers in the Old Testament, <laughs> like some kind of weird patterns and stuff. And all of the patterns and all of the, the maths and stuff always end up telling you completely useless things, like the day JFK got shot or something. I think I already know that. If so it was actually helpful to me, it would, it would talk about the stock market or something tomorrow. Um, <laughs> actually, that wouldn't be helpful. For me, because uh, I uh, I decided to do theology because I thought that was where the money was, and it turned out it's (laughs) not the case. So if you if you're going to Bible College or if you're going to, as I did, I went to university um, to do do theology, and you think think that uh, you're going to make a lot of money, then um, (laughs) let me tell you, that's not the case. Um, But yeah, I I I I know now that you know that I do theology. because i told you, um, I'd appreciate that if you could keep it to yourself. Um, (laughs) I don't want people to think I'm crazy, and I don't want to attract any more crazy people into my life than than I already have. Um, So, uh, as Jesse said, my task this morning uh, is to talk about communion. A few weeks ago, he came and, and said, um, "Can I say a few words about communion?" Said he'd it, give me three and a half hours. I said, <laughs> "I said it's easy. I can do it in two minutes." So, <laughs> so we'll see. Um, uh, if uh, uh, the question is, "Why do we do communion?" So, and as you'll see, it's an easy question to answer. Um, if we could turn to First Corinthians eleven, I think there's a slide somewhere. Um, Uh, Oh, yeah, there's the title, by the way, uh, Sons and Daughters in the Sun. Um, And uh, uh, I've put it up on the slide, the next one. It's quite small, but um, this is Paul, um, the Apostle Paul, talking to um, some Christians in Corinth who are very bad at being Christian, um, (laughs) uh, not doing a very good job of it, um, and getting into all sorts of muddles. And in the middle of his letter, it's quite a long letter to them, um, uh, he says this. He tells them about the Lord's Supper. He says this. I received from the Lord, and I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Why do we do communion? It's easy because Jesus commanded us to. That's about as simple as it gets. Jesus asked us to do this, and I take it that Jesus asked us to do stuff. We shouldn't go, hmm, maybe, maybe not. I'll get back to you, Lord. We should go, yes, Lord. That's what we should do. <laughs> um, so uh, now I've answered the question. I guess we can have the rest of Sunday off. <laughs> just, I need to get a. This, this espresso's still not here, so I don't know. <laughs> I, mean, I need to get some. Uh um, Uh, actually, um, that's not true. You can't go home. Um, We've still got some work to do. Because while it's absolutely true that the reason we do communion is because Jesus commanded us to, we also need to ask ourselves why Jesus told us to do this. In Scripture, we often encounter the commands of God. I better put the timer on because I'm... uh, to, oh, there we go. Three hours and 27 uh, minutes already. I, must have, I think I said it this morning. Right. In Scripture, we often encounter the commands of God. And whenever we do, we should remember a couple of things. Firstly, God isn't arbitrary, He doesn't just give commands for yucks, He asks things of us for a reason. Second thing we need to remember is that since God is perfect beyond all measure, since there's nothing he lacks or needs, since his life is utterly full to overflowing, anything he asks us to do can only be for our benefit, not for his. God stands to get nothing from us. There's nothing that God can get from us that he doesn't already have and have in abundance. So when he commands us to pray or to worship him or to love our neighbor or to keep the Sabbath holy, all of these things are for our benefit. They're things to help us. They're God's ways of blessing us. So when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, he's not just throwing out an arbitrary command. He's telling us that on top of, and he's not, sorry, telling us that on top of all the other things we have to do in our life, all the obligations, all the burdens, um, you know, when you get up in the morning and you're really grumpy and somebody says, good morning, really happily, I'm not looking at my father here, and, um, and you think, "Ah, go away, and instead you know deep down in your heart that's not the appropriate response. You know, that's one of the things you have to do, right? You have to be nice to people, even when you're not feeling it. And on top of all these obligations and all the burdens, all the annoying, annoying things we have to do, we don't also have to do communion or pray or go to church. It's not one more obligation we have to do. It's a gift. God is giving us a gift for us, not for him. He doesn't need anything. He's giving us a gift. And it seems to me worth us taking the time to ponder what that gift actually is. Here again, there's a very simple answer. If we look back at Corinthians for a moment, um, if you could put the thing, the tiny writing on the board, I'm half blind, I can't even see it really. my fault because I did the, the, the font. But. I received from the Lord and I also handed on to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body that is for you. And Matthew, when Matthew records this um, in his gospel, it's even more direct. Jesus says, take, eat, this is my body. So the gift that Jesus is giving us in communion is nothing less than himself. His body, his blood, his life. We are being summoned to feed on Christ. Why? Because he's the bread of life. Because the source of the life that we live is not ourselves, but Christ. We live in him. Our lives are hidden in his life the secret of our lives, the meaning of our lives, is not to be found in ourselves. If we are to know who we are, we must look to Christ. He is the mirror in which we see who we really are. It's his life that is the source of our life. It's tempting here, however, I, mean, I think that's, that's my answer, right? <laughs> but it's tempting so start thinking. Um, to think of, of this as all a very abstract and spiritual thing. When we talk about Christ's life, we're not actually talking about some super-spiritual, vague thing floating around in the ether. Some mysterious voice in our head that directs us to the one free car. Um, parking space when we're doing our shopping. The Bible doesn't know anything of this. (laughs) That's not what the Bible means when it says you live in the life of Christ. Your life, when St. Paul says your life is hidden in Christ, he's not talking about this vague spiritual, spiritual thing out there, some voice in your head. What we are talking about instead is something that is very concrete, something that has a very definite shape to it we are talking about a very particular life. That's the life that's depicted for us in the Gospels. So what are we to say about that life? Many things. It's not for nothing that the Gospel writers tell us so many stories about Jesus. Jesus about him feeding crowds of people and healing blind men and arguing with religious authorities and making sure there's enough wine at weddings, is the most important thing that Jesus did, and escaping the crowds to pray by himself and teaching the disciples stuff they continually misunderstand and spending time with his friends Mary and Martha and crying over the death of his friend Lazarus and cursing the fig tree and cooking breakfast for the disciples on the beach. And of course, there are many, many, many other stories. In fact, one of the uh, uh, authors of the Gospel said that there are too many stories. He couldn't fit them all in. And this is exactly what we should expect, actually, given that the life that Jesus lives is actually God's life, the superabundant life that's lived out amongst us. We never get done getting a handle on the light of the world. There's always more to say about Jesus than can be said. As I mentioned before, his life does have a definite shape. Jesus' words and deeds aren't random. He's about something, and he's going somewhere. That somewhere is the cross. Sometimes we read the Gospels as if the cross was just this random moment. As if things were going quite well for Jesus. He was doing all these miracles. It was going great. People were following him. There are a couple of iffy moments along the way, but basically things are going all right. And then he annoys the wrong people and everything goes bad. Um, and it seems like, oh my goodness, everything's gone terrible. What's we going to do? Jesus dies. And then suddenly all of this is reversed in the resurrection and we get our happy ending. Now, whatever we might say about that story, it's not the story that the gospel writers tell about Jesus. For them, the cross isn't a random moment. It's not some kind of dramatic twist introduced to add tension to everything before there's a happy ending, either. It's actually the point towards which everything is moving right from the beginning. Right from the moment when John says the word is made flesh, God comes among us. Right from that moment, everything is moving towards the cross. Paul, um, a little earlier in, in Corinthians, which we're looking at at the moment, Paul says that he knows nothing but Christ crucified. Then a little later in the passage that we're looking at today, he says that it is the death of Christ that we proclaim when we take communion. Now, that's not because Paul has some morbid fascination with death. And it's not because he's ignoring Christ's life, all the things that I talked about before, all the things that Jesus did, all the people he met. It's because all of the events of Christ's life, everything he does, the miracles, the healings, the raising of Lazarus, and so on, all of these moments of his life are moments on the way to the cross. But they're even more than that. Jesus is not simply passive in these moments. He's not sort of randomly going around the world, bumping into people and having stuff happen to him. It's almost as if he's collecting things. Grief, joy, pain, sorrow, ordinary everyday happiness, ordinary everyday frustration, people's shoddy behavior, their petty misunderstandings, their sham piety, the corrupt bureaucracies that damage their lives, the joy and innocence of children, the hunger of crowds, the desperateness of sick people, the foolishness of earnest disciples, and the cowardice of those same disciples. It's as if he's collecting all of the frailties and joys and stupidities and triumphs of human life, all of the ways in which human beings love God and their neighbors, and all of the ways in which they fail to love God and their neighbors and do horrendous damage to themselves and to others. It's as if he's collecting these things, not as a journalist would, or as a neutral observer who's sort of taking down notes. Aha, like an alien who comes to the panel. Aha, I see people are very sad. Um, that's interesting. I'll put that in my book. That's not what it's like. It's rather he's living them himself. He's taking them up into his own life. That's what happens when he attends weddings and when he eats with sinners and tax collectors and when he encounters Nathaniel under the tree, badmouthing him, and when he encounters Zacchaeus up in the tree later on, and when he hangs out with Mary and Martha and when he is left by himself alone to face the darkness and his anguish in Gethsemane and when he is questioned Pilate, and when he's hung between two thieves and keeps them company while they die. He's absorbing into his life everything that is part of human experience. Even to the point of experiencing hell and death, he's taking upon himself everything in human life, even the worst thing, even the thing that is the enemy of life. He's taking up even death, into his own life. Question is, what do we do with all of this? What does Jesus do with this life that has absorbed everything human, that bears all of human history, all of its tragedy and all of its glory, a life that carries all of humanity, all of the good things, all of the bad things, all of the pain, all of the joy. What does He do with this life? He gives it to the Father. The death of Jesus is not when the world gets the better of Him, only to be reversed at the resurrection when God says, "Aha! <laughs> yeah, I told you all." The death of Jesus is when He gives His life to the Father, and so gives everything that that life carries the whole world, to the Father and sanctifies it and makes it holy and reconciles it to God. This, I think, in um, Hebrews, when it takes up that great image of the high priest from the Old Testament, you might remember there are, in the Old Testament, there are lots of um, different kinds of people. There are, there are prophets who tell, whose job is to tell the truth. And there are kings whose job it is to make sure that, the, that society is just, that our relationship to each other are ordered right. And then there are priests. The priest's job is to take the people with him to God, bring them before God. Now, Christians early on, the reason they, they read the Old Testament and they saw in these three things, these, they saw in these three jobs, they said, this is a language that will help us understand what Christ is. Christ tells the truth. He exposes everything to the light of God. He's the prophet. He's a king because he's reordering society. He brings the 12 disciples, like the 12 tribes of Judah, together, and he says, this is, this is the new kingdom here. This is where you can live in right relationship with each other. And he's the great high priest, Hebrews says, because he brings everything, all of humanity, to God. And in bringing all of humanity and giving his life, which is the life that has absorbed everything, and giving his life and abandoning it to the Father, he brings all of us with him and sanctifies us. This is the great gift, the Son giving his life, and with it, everything that is human to the Father. By everything, I include, of course, ourselves. Our lives are lives that Jesus carries and brings before the Father, and so sanctifies and makes holy, in spite, of course, our best efforts to resist this, or to live as if this wasn't true. Jesus' life is a life wholly given to the Father, and our lives are caught up in that giving. When Jesus gives his life to the Father, he gives our lives too. I want to stress the objective nature of this. We may or may not live as if our lives have been offered up to the Father, but whether we like it or not, whether we ask for it or not, our lives have been sanctified. They has been made holy lives in Christ. Our task is simply to acknowledge what in Christ is already the case. That's what Paul is trying to get um, the Corinthians to understand in his first letter to the Corinthians. You might know, um, and as I mentioned before, the church in Corinth was a bit of a mess. People were doing dumb stuff. They were arguing with each other. They were being selfish. They're putting, each other's, um, they're putting their own needs above each other. So Paul writes to them and he tells them to stop being so dumb and to instead start being what they already are, a people whom God has made holy. Infighting between different people in the church makes no sense because God has already made you one body. So act like it. Being selfish makes no sense because God has overturned all that worldly logic. All the worldly logic that says, if I'm to get ahead in life, A, that firstly, my goal is to get ahead of life. And secondly, if I'm to do that, I'm going to have to move past all these people. God's overturned all of that. He's actually made the most foolish, weakest things the, the wisdom of God. He's made a man of sorrows, that wonderful line about Jesus, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And he said, this is, this is, this is real wisdom. This is real power. He's overturned all of our logic. So if God's overturned all of our logic, we need to act like it. Conform yourselves to reality, Paul says to the Corinthians. And the reality is that your life is hidden in Jesus' life. And that when he gave his life to the Father, he gave your life too. And so made you holy. It's pointless pretending otherwise. All your sin is nothing more than foolish make-believe. It's out of kilter with how things really are. Don't try to hang on to your life. That's a losing game. Because you don't have a life to hang on to anymore. It's been given to God. The best you can do, your only hope really is to start living accordingly. God will make you like his son, whether you want to be or not. This is this is Andy, this is the signal. Andy yeah. That went well. Um So we come to the communion table. It's interesting that Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, he's, he's telling all of these, them these things. He's saying face up to reality. And in the middle of it, he, he, uh, he tells us about communion, what Jesus handed on to him. Um, because that's the center of it. We come to the communion table, the place where we remember the eternal moment which is the context within which we live all of our lives. The son's giving of his life to the father. This is the moment that shapes all of our lives. Now, of course, we can run away from that. What I'm suggesting is it's a better move (laughs) to acknowledge that that's what it is, that this is reality, and to try and live accordingly. Communion is the place where we acknowledge this eternal moment. And it's the place where we remember that that gift, the son's giving of his life to the father, that gift is for us. This is my body given for you. Feed on it because it is the source of your life. Because in the pouring out of my life, in the abandoning of my life to the father, you will find the shape of your own life. You will find the life of your own life. Take, eat. This is where you discover who you are. Sons and daughters in the sun.